0: Genesis chapter 12, last week we began our series... This, this big series, God willing, that we'll spend this year working through called The Whole Story, working our way nearly book by book through the Old Testament. Uh, last week, we began our series on the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, as, as Marcus mentioned, literally the book of beginnings. And Genesis, you may know, is split uh, fairly nicely into two big sections. So last week, Marcus covered Genesis 1 through 11. And Genesis 1 through 11, um, it deals with the overall sweeping scope of God's grace and of God's mercy um, and and deals with the consequences of our sin and our rebellion in this this vast way that spans time, that spans geography and people groups. And then here in Genesis 12, the story slows way down. The story slows way down and it deals not with this grand sweep of history, It deals with just one family from here on, from Genesis 12 all the way through the end to Genesis chapter 50. It deals with just this one family and in particular the descendants of just one man, Abram, or as he'll later be called, Abraham. And so you may hear me switch back and forth between Abram and Abraham or you'll see the text um, switch from Abram to Abraham. So it's the same guy. And this is, it's almost jarring from Genesis 1 through 11. And it just almost full stop and starts this way in Genesis 12, introducing us to this man. And I'll read it here for you. I think I should have it behind me. It says in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, this is before his name was changed. The Lord said to Abram, this is the first time we're meeting this guy. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So this is this big call on Abram's life. God has, he has met him there. Uh, Abraham's a a pagan in a pagan country with a pagan family. God meets him in this moment and he gives them this call. He says, I want you essentially, I want you to leave uh, everything that you know. I want you to leave everything that's familiar to you. I want you to leave everything that's safe Uh, I want you to leave everything that your identity is sort of wrapped up in. And I want you essentially just to go, right? He doesn't even tell him where he's going exactly. He's just saying, I want you to go to this land that I will show you. And he says, I will make of you a great nation. So there's this call and there's this promise. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And surprisingly, maybe we wouldn't have responded this way, but Abraham did. He went. Abraham went just as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, his nephew, and it says Abraham, this is an interesting note here, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, even as I'm thinking about this, most of the people who are 75 years and older, they don't even like sleeping away from their own bed, right? But God is calling this man to leave everything and to wander through the desert to this unknown place. And it says simply, Abraham went and he took Sarah, his wife, took Lot, his brother's son, uh, and all their possessions that they had gathered and all the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. God, again, we pray that you would help us be people of faith. God, I pray that you would help us put our faith in you. God, you are a trustworthy God. We thank you for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there is this implicit question. At the end of the first section of of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11. Marcus talked about this last week. The the question is essentially what is God going to do to make all of this mess right? What is God going to do? Um, How is God going to make good on his promise, essentially, to rescue and redeem this broken world? What's he going to do? Adam and Eve messed it up. Their, Their firstborn Cain, where we thought maybe the hope will come from Cain, this firstborn, he turned out to be a murderer. It wasn't Noah. It wasn't Noah's children or or his family. It wasn't this great community that built the Tower of Babel. In fact, as you're reading the story, it actually seems like things are going from bad to worse, right? They're certainly not getting any better. They're going from bad to worse since God promised the serpent in Genesis 3 that one day a child would be born who would, though he would himself be bruised by the serpent, ultimately this child would defeat the serpent and crush his head. And so by the end of Genesis 11, the question remains, where is this child Where is this rescuer? And now here in Genesis 12, we're introduced to this old, childless man from a pagan country... ...whom God gives a promise that though not identical to the promise that he made in Genesis 3... ...is in some ways an echo of it. All the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. So there's hope. There's hope for Abraham. There's hope for us. And yet immediately... Abraham, like all the rest in this story, proves himself unworthy of God's favor. And you're going to see this pattern throughout as we work our way through this book. You're going to see this pattern throughout. That these, these aren't the heroes that some of us have made them out to be. In, in VBS or in Sunday school, I mean, many of us know the songs. These aren't the heroes that maybe some of us have made them out to be. There are things that are praiseworthy. But let's be clear, these are not perfect Men and women. Just a few verses, just a few verses after God's promise to Abraham in chapter 12. Abraham and his entourage, they're, they're leaving their area. They're making their way to Egypt. And while they're in Egypt, Abraham essentially sells out his wife to Pharaoh. Because he's, and I'll, I'll read it in his words. Maybe I'll have this on the screen in Genesis 12, verses 11 through 13. He says, he's telling his wife, Sarah, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance, which is a great way, it's sort of a good news before bad news kind of scenario, right? Honey, I know you're, you're so pretty. You're such a beautiful woman. But when the Egyptians see you, they're going to say to me, this is, this is his wife, and they're going to kill me, and they'll let you live. And so instead, say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. So, so this is the father of our faith. Just a few verses after this call, just a few verses after this promise, Abraham is selling his wife out to cover his own skin. Right off the bat, Abraham's imperfections are clear. Abraham, like all of us, is sometimes uh, faithful and sometimes he's not. Sometimes Abraham is obedient, sometimes Abraham is rebellious in some areas, and at sometimes Abraham trusts God, and in other times he doubts God, and he operates, again, like many of us, out of fear. Not only would Abraham dishonor his wife right off the bat in Egypt uh, by offering her to Pharaoh, He would dishonor her again by sleeping with and then impregnating Sarah's servant girl because both Abraham and Sarah, they doubted that God could actually make good on his promise to give them an heir. They said, this isn't going to work with this 90-year-old barren wife. It's just impossible. There's no way God could have done that. So let's try this other way. These people, maybe like me and you, were were doing uh, the best that they could. Maybe they were doing the best they could most of the time. And yet they made um, catastrophic mistakes along the way. And at least for me, as I read stories like this, I am encouraged because I make catastrophic mistakes along the way. And I'm seeing that these are the people that God is choosing to use. The, The father of our faith, as Paul refers to Abraham in Romans... This patriarch, he's he's not chosen because of his goodness or his wisdom or his faithfulness or his courage, but because, and this is important, but because he trusts in, even as consistent as that was, he trusts in the God who is ultimately good, who is ultimately wise. He trusts in the God who is ultimately faithful and even who would eventually offer himself in this greatest act of self-sacrifice. Abraham and Sarah, not to be commended because, of their, because they're trustworthy, but because they put their trust in a trustworthy God. And if you know the story, eventually, after 25 years of waiting, after 25 years of waiting, and if you can do the math, when Abraham was 100 and his wife was 90, she conceives and gives birth to a son. And you know what they call him? They call him Isaac, which means laughter, because the whole thing seems like a joke, right? This this is this is laughable. This this is silly. How in the world could countless descendants? At one point in the story, God takes uh, Abraham out at night and he tells him to look up at the sky and he shows him the stars. He says, "Abraham, one day, this is before their son was born. One day, your descendants will outnumber the stars." And Abraham is thinking, "What a joke! What a joke!" How in the world could these countless descendants that would would outnumber the stars, this uh, massive and powerful nation, how could it emerge from a a hundred-year-old nomad wandering through the desert married to a 90-year-old barren woman? And yet, church, God was faithful. And now they have this son. They have this son, Isaac. And so as you're reading the story and all this buildup and all this angst and all this hope, you're thinking, maybe Isaac's the one, right? Maybe Isaac is the one who will now crush the head of the serpent. Maybe everything that is wrong will be made right. Maybe this is how God is going to turn everything around. And the story of the birth, birth of Isaac, and I mean, we're, we're blasting through this book of Genesis. So I so strongly encourage you to take the time, slow down, work your way through this text, because there is just so much there. As you're reading the story, the story of Isaac's birth that we've been waiting for so long, it's in chapter 21. And in the very next chapter, in chapter 22, Genesis 22 begins like this. I'll have it on the screen, Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. And God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I should tell you. Is that jarring to anybody else? I've been, we've been waiting for this boy. We've been waiting for this baby for 25 years, born under miraculous circumstances. And here we are. He actually came. Here he is. They're, they're holding this baby boy. And the next chapter, God, again, calls to Abraham. And what was Sarah thinking? What was Sarah thinking about this call that God gave to Abraham? In this moment, he says, Abraham, I want you to take this boy, this boy that you love, this boy you've been waiting for all these years, and I want you to take him to this place, and I want you to kill him. All, all their hope, for both of them, all of their hope, all of their identity, their whole future is tied up into this boy, Isaac, and God is calling them to give him, to give him up. One of the most horrifying and heart-wrenching passages in all the Bible, Genesis 22, 9, should have it behind me. And they, they go really slowly in, in drawing this story out and building the suspense. And in verse 9, it says, when they, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, and he laid the wood in order, and he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I know, I know there's many people in here who, uh, who struggled with infertility for a long time, struggled for years to get pregnant, maybe never biologically conceived a child and said adopted children. You know, you know that ache, you know that longing, and and for any of us who are parents, no matter what our story, the idea of just imagine taking your son. Walking up this hill, even in, in the midst of the story, Isaac's going, where's the, where's the lamb that we're going to sacrifice, dad? And Abraham rightly says, God's going to provide. God, I don't know how God's going to sort all this out, but God's going to sort all this out somehow. And it says, just as Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son... The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and he said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham saying, thank God. Yes, here I am. Let's change this story. He says, don't lay your hand on your boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld even your son from me. Excuse me, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it. I mean, can you just imagine that's that's when you're like ugly crying in that moment, right? When you've got your your knife in your hand held to your boy's throat thinking, my God, please let there be another way. God, I want to trust you, but you can't be calling me to do this. There's got to be some other way. And then in that moment, God speaks to you again, and there is the substitute. Just caught in the thicket. And so he sacrificed the ram instead of his son, and he called the name of that place the Lord will provide. One of the lessons here, and this is critical throughout all the text, God demanded everything from him. So don't miss that. God demanded everything from him, and yet God provided everything for him. Do you see that there? You see what God is doing there in that moment? He's changing Abraham and he's changing the way Abraham thinks about God. And eventually Isaac, this promised child, he grows into adulthood. And at 40 years old, he marries this woman named Rebecca. And Rebecca too, surprise, surprise, just like Sarah was barren. Almost every one of these women in the story of God bringing forth children is barren. Everything seems to be working against God's plan. Isaac finally, he prays for his wife. He prays for her for 20 years. And she eventually conceives and she gives birth not just to one boy, but to two. I saw this image of these two boys fighting together. Yeah, that's who we're dealing with right here. She gives birth to these two boys, Jacob and Esau. And we can leave that image up there for a bit. Scripture says that when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out, of, uh, out red, his body like a hairy cloak. So that's a little disturbing. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with the sand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now you may know the story. Um, but but Jacob, his name actually is a Hebrew um, euphemism meaning deceiver. So the idea if if you're if you're holding on to someone's heel, that means as a euphemism for saying you're a liar or you're deceiver. So his name, like many of these names in Scripture. Has a sort of double meaning. And eventually, if you know the story, Jacob is a deceiver. He's found out to be a swindler and a scoundrel. And he deceives both his brother Esau and his father Isaac in this elaborate scheme to gain Esau's birthright. Jacob, in about every way, turns out to live up to his namesake. So, again, church, do you see a pattern? God's not going after the A-listers, right? He's not even going after the B-listers at this point. I mean, he's dealing with, with, with deeply flawed, deeply broken people. In some ways, it seems he's doing this to show that only he gets the glory. It's not, it's not going to be any of these guys. It's not going to be any of these girls. Their, their flaws are on clear display. And yet he still in the midst of it is gracious, is generous, is merciful, And he continues to use them, and not just use them, but to bring about completely all of his promises. There's a little bit of irony in Genesis 29. We see that Jacob, who has deceived his family, he gets a taste of his own medicine. And he he is deceived by the father of the woman he loves, Laban. Laban is the father of of, of Rachel and Leah. Jacob loved uh, Rachel and he worked for his future father-in-law for seven years. So he he wanted to marry her. He says, okay, you can marry her, but you got to work for me. So Jacob worked for him for seven years. And then finally on their wedding night, as Jacob's about to go into the tent to consummate his marriage with the woman he loves, Rachel, his father-in-law deceives him And instead of going to bed with Rachel, he goes to bed with Leah, whose scripture seems to paint as the the ugly, unwanted wife. She's the woman no one wanted. And Jacob himself was deceived. We're going to come back to Leah. She plays a very important role in this story. But Rachel, the one he'd worked so hard for, the woman he loved, again, like so many of these other women, was barren. And yet again, because of God's graciousness, the text says in Genesis 30, God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and he opened her womb and she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph. Now, before we get into uh, the story of Joseph, there's another very important event in the life of Jacob, Joseph's father. <clears throat> Again, there's so much here to cover and we're just, just brushing the surface. There is a scene in Genesis where, it's in Genesis 32, where in, in the midst of all kinds of relational and, and family turmoil, Um, For Jacob, he's literally fleeing for his life, running from his brother who wants to kill him because of of his deception. Jacob is there alone in the middle of the night and Jacob encounters this man. Jacob would later say that this man was God. He encounters this man in the middle of the night and this man attacks him. This man attacks Jacob. Jacob doesn't know who this guy is. And throughout the night, they fight and they struggle and they struggle and they fight. And eventually, the man, it says, touches Jacob's hip and dislocates it so that Jacob will now forever walk with a limp. And in the midst of the struggle, the man asks Jacob what his name is. He says, tell me your name. Jacob tells him his name. And the man says, your name from here on out will no longer be Jacob. But Israel. For you've struggled with God and with men, and you have prevailed. Now, to get a new name is a pretty powerful experience when your current name is Deceiver. Right? So so God, that's what that's what Jacob refers to him. God, the angel of the Lord, this mysterious figure in the night. Comes to Jacob and he says, you are a deceiver. But not anymore. Now you're Israel. And Israel is someone who strives after God, who can struggle with God. It's this kind of uh, conversion experience almost in the night with God. His, his identity, Jacob's identity is, is changed because now he's willing to engage God. Not because he had all the answers in this moment. Not because uh, everything else has been figured out. But because very simply he was willing to wrestle with and struggle and strive after God. And so here, from here on, this very critical moment in the life of God's people. From here on, God's people, the people of Israel are those who are struggling and striving after God. That's what the name means. Eventually among four different women, Jacob would father 12 sons who would either themselves or their children become the 12 tribes of Israel. That's how we're, we're sort of building out this nation. You're, you're beginning to see uh, just glimmers of this promise that God gave to Eve and then this other level of promise that God gave to Abraham. You're seeing it all come to fruition, just the whispers of it, just glimmers of hope. These sons would become the 12 tribes of Israel. But, but Joseph, um, Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. And he treated him like his favorite son. The story in Genesis culminates with the story of Joseph. Here, here's the best picture I could find of Joseph. and There you go. That's the, that's the best I could do. That's the best I could do after like 15 minutes of looking. So I just said, you know what, let's go with that one. Joseph's story is a fairly familiar story. Um, Joseph is the, the second to the youngest of Joseph's sons. He's the baby. He's one of the babies. And Joseph, you remember, he's a dreamer. And every morning he'd wake up and he'd be sitting around the breakfast table eating his cereal. And all his brothers would be there. And he would love to tell them about his dreams. And and he would tell his brother and his parents about these dreams. But the dreams would go something like this. You know, I was dreaming last night and I dreamed that all of you were bowing down and worshiping me. So not only was he the baby and not only was he uh, loved most among all of his other brothers, but now he's, he's. this is not a great way to endear yourself to brothers who already dislike you, right? To sharing with them the story about how they will Bow down to him. Joseph's father, uh, Jacob, eventually buys him this coat of many colors. And this coat of many colors, coupled with uh, the dreams that Joseph is sharing, they it all pushes his brothers over the edge, and they decide they can't take it anymore, and they're going to kill him. They're going to kill their father's favorite. One of their brothers actually is a little bit more opportunistic and he says, why kill him when we can make some money? Let's sell him instead, right? We don't need to kill him. Let's sell him instead. And so his brothers sell Joseph into slavery and they go back to the father. They go back to Jacob and they, they, they bring him bloody clothes and say, dad, your, your son has been killed. Your favorite son has been killed. Again, I I so strongly encourage you to go this week and and read through the book of Genesis. Read through the story of Joseph. I'll only go over it briefly here. Joseph goes from being loved by his father. He goes from, from being hated, despised by his brother, to a slave in Egypt. The baby of the family. The spoiled one. His brother sold him out. Now he's a slave in Egypt and he starts there uh, and he's first a slave in the house of Potiphar and then after being falsely accused of a crime ends up in, imprisoned in Egypt. And yet over and over and over again in the text, you know what it says? It says, but the Lord was with Joseph. So even in the midst of all of this, can you, can you just imagine how disorienting that would be? We read read these stories, we hear these stories in Sunday school. Some of us grew up in the church and so these stories, they feel so familiar. But just slow down for a minute and imagine this, this boy Joseph. He'll probably never see his parents again. His brothers hated him so much that they sold him into brutal slavery to a pagan nation. He's now been falsely accused of a crime, and he finds himself completely alone and in prison with no help, with no resources, with no relationship, with with no voice, with no power. There he is all alone, and yet the Lord was with him, and through a, a crazy series of of completely unpredictable and unexpected events, Joseph, the prisoner, Joseph, the dreamer, gets an opportunity to interpret one of Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh's having these dreams. No one can interpret Pharaoh's dreams. They remember Joseph, who is a dreamer and an interpreter of dreams. And so Pharaoh says, you know what? Last-ditch effort. Let's bring the prisoner in. Let's see if he has anything to say. And so they bring Joseph in. Pharaoh shares his dream. And Joseph interprets it, and his interpretations please Pharaoh. And literally in the span of one day, Joseph goes from being completely alone in the the pit of a prison cell to being made second in command in Pharaoh's palace. Pharaoh Pharaoh takes Joseph from a prison cell. He promotes him to his his literally right-hand man. In Genesis 41, Pharaoh says to Joseph, only as regards to my throne will I be greater than you. No one can do anything in Egypt now unless they get permission from Joseph. A complete reversal. Was it because he's so smart? Was it because he's so creative? No, the text tells us over and over and over again, it's because the Lord was with him. The Lord was present with him. The Lord had not forgotten about Joseph. The Lord had not forgotten his promise to Joseph and to Joseph's family. The dream that Joseph interpreted for Pharaoh was a dream about a coming famine. Pharaoh had this dream, Joseph interprets it, and Joseph said, here's what your dream's about. A famine is coming It's going to wreck this nation and all of our neighbors. And so not only did Joseph rightly interpret this dream, he also uh, devises a plan to both protect Egypt and, uh, and to present Pharaoh as this sort of ruling king with all the power who could control the food. He says, if you're just, if you prepare Pharaoh in these years where there's plenty, you're going to be the one who has, everybody's going to have to come to you for food. You're going to have all the power. That's why Pharaoh promotes him. He loves that news. That's great news for Pharaoh. And, and, and the story begins to sort of wind down in Genesis with Joseph in Egypt And now, all of the nations of the earth are having to come to Egypt. They're having to come to Pharaoh to get their food because they're starving. And guess who comes knocking? Joseph's brothers. His brothers. His brothers who had sold him out, his brothers who, the brothers who wanted to kill him, the brothers who lied to their father that, that his favorite son was dead, they are now desperate. They are literally starving, and the only person on the planet who can give them what they need is Joseph. Now, they don't know that, right? They don't know what happened to Joseph after they sold him into slavery. Probably something horrific, but he's certainly not in the palace. That would have been unthinkable, right? But in one of the most tense and most beautiful scenes in Genesis, Joseph's brothers, they go to Joseph. At first, they don't even know who he is. They're bowing down before Joseph, just as Joseph said they would in his dreams when he was a boy. And they're begging for food and they're begging for their lives. In the midst of this story, there's a few encounters between the, the Joseph and his brothers. At first, they don't know who he is. Then finally, they do know who he is. But then their father, Jacob, dies. And the brothers know, now that our father is dead, he's going to kill us all. Right? what would you do? What would you do to these terrible older brothers who had sold you into horrific slavery, never to see your family again? You now have all the power. You now have all the resources. You have every right and full authority to slaughter every one of them. And that's what his brothers think that he'll do. And and Joseph, as they're begging, Joseph responds um, with the sentence that in many ways sums up the whole book of Genesis. He says in Genesis 50, maybe I'll have this on the screen, Genesis fifty. Verses 18 through 20, his brothers, they came to him, they fell down before him, and they said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What you meant for evil, God has meant for good. In other words, as we see through this entire book, what God's creation, all of the people, all of us, what what God's creation meant for evil in this world, everything that is broken in this world, all of our sin, all of our mistakes, all of our failures, all of our family dramas, all of our pain and our confusion and our fear, all of that, all the things that we do that, uh, that are destructive, all the things that people do to us that are destructive. God can work for good. He can transform it all into good. This is his way. This is how he, how he acts. Try as we might to wreck God's plan. He is wise when we are foolish, church. Church. He is just even when we are unjust. He is faithful, scripture says, even when we are faithless. Let me close with this. You remember Leah, the ugly one, the unwanted wife of Jacob? Eventually, God would bless Leah with six sons. who would make up half the tribe of Israel. and one of those sons was named Judah. And just before his death, in Genesis 49, Jacob, he calls all these boys together. This' is a powerful scene. He calls all of his boys together. And he's, he's speaking to them. He's essentially giving them a blessing. Uh, even though some of, it's, some of it's very hard words to these boys. He's calling them together, blessing them. And the irony should not be lost. That Jacob himself swindled his brother and his father for his blessing, right? Nonetheless, Jacob calls these boys together. He blesses them. And, and of his son Judah, the, the, the one born from the unwanted wife... He says this. He says in Genesis 49 verses 8 through 10, "Judah your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemy. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He he stooped down, he crouches as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall never depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him." and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now there's a lot there, so let's slow down a little bit. These are, again, in some ways, echoes of God's promise to his grandpa, Abraham. There is this son that will come to rule from whom the scepter will never depart. This eternal king for the people. So the question remains, Is Judah that son? Is is Judah finally that son? We get to the the end of Genesis, right? The end of this book of beginnings. Is Judah now finally the son who would crush the head of the serpent? No. Judah, like everyone else in the story, like everyone else in this room was deeply flawed. He did horrific things. And yet even through him, God's promise is fulfilled. Some of you can see where this is going if you know the story of scriptures. Genesis ends with this sort of blessing and this comment that what they meant for evil, God meant for good, And as we work our way through the final chapters of the Bible to the very end in the book of Revelation, you see this image of Judah coming up over and over again. And there's a scene, uh, if you know the book of Revelation, uh, John the Apostle who walked with Jesus, he is sort of taken up and given this vision of heaven. And while he's there, he's shown this scroll from God that no one can open. Right, and so John is weeping because no one is worthy to open the scroll to reveal God's words. And in, in Revelation five, uh, I may have this here, verse four. It says, "I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it." And one of the elders said to me, "Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered." He can open the scroll and it seals. And then, and then this, this Jesus, this son of God, this man, this king, this lion of Judah, he opens the scrolls and the angels begin to sing, worthy are you to take the scroll, worthy are you to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, from every language, from every people, from every nation. You've made a kingdom and priests to our God and now they shall reign on the earth. You see what's happened here. This promise that we're getting glimpses of in this book of beginnings, in this book of Genesis, is fulfilled finally in the end. This lion of Judah who would rule forever. This is a man more faithful than Abraham. Abraham. This is a man more precious even than Isaac. This is a man who struggled with God more than Jacob. He was more forgiving than Joseph. He was a lion from Judah, this unexpected king to rule forever. A man whose whose line began with God's favor to this ugly, unwanted woman. As though God is saying to all of us, Look what I can do with this mess. Look what I can do with the unwanted. Look what I can do with the broken. Look what I can do to the faithless, to the helpless. This king, this son, who would eventually crush the head of the serpent for you and for me. This one, as John says, the only one worthy to open the scroll, the Lion of Judah, slain and ransomed his people by his own blood. This is the story of the gospel from beginning to end. Let me pray for us.